0: Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we welcome BAFTA and Oscar-nominated director Adam Mackay and Directors UK member and BAFTA award-winning director Sarah Gavron. They're talking about Adam's latest film, Don't Look Up. We hear Adam discuss the variety of film formats used to shoot the film, how he builds layers of meaning through production design, and how he uses the script as a springboard for actors to improvise on set. The Directors UK podcast celebrates the craft of directing. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please rate, review and subscribe. And don't forget to share with your friends. Now, back to Adam and Sarah.
1: Very exciting for me because I don't normally get a chance to talk to
2: directors. I know. I love that you're doing this. I'm a fan of yours.
1: I stop it. So I was like, really? She's going to ask me questions. <laughs> All right. I love it. I, we've just got to begin with the fact that apparently. France is having like just tell us about the French marches. <laughs>
2: this is just yeah, a it's, it's really cool. We heard like about two, three weeks ago that there were five, six cities in France. You know, some of the bigger cities were going to do a just look up day for climate. I was like, oh, that's cool. And then a couple weeks ago, our amazing publicist Paula Woods told me like or, or a week ago she told me it's no, it's now like more like forty. 50 cities are now doing it. And then she just told me as we were walking in that it's now spreading outside of France. which is bonkers. I mean, you know. We've got to start
1: them here. Yeah, yeah. That did
2: not happen with stepbrothers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty cool.
1: And it's, Ukraine. You've got to tell the story about Ukraine. I'm
2: well, sure. that was another crazy one. You guys know what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. And about two weeks ago, uh, President Zelensky um, did a speech where he actually said in the speech, don't worry. This isn't a don't look up situation. I know what's going on, uh, but the craziest country has been Brazil. Brazil, and and apparently Ukraine, the whole country, really embraced it, but Brazil has really embraced the movie, and it's become embroiled in their politics, and obviously Bolsonaro's going, and there's a, a democratic socialist who's coming in, But we were seeing uh, feeds from Nigeria, Pakistan, Cambodia, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I've done comedies for a long, long time, and it's rare that they cross international borders like that. There's usually a lot of cultural impediments uh, that stop comedy from translating. Um, So it was really heartening because I I think the way a lot of us view the world right now, it sort of feels like through our media lens, no one cares. There's kind of this half BS that we're seeing. And to see people Mm -hmm. across the world be like, no, we know that's true. And, you know, I'm not saying it's the the (laughs) greatest film ever made, but it was like the emotional sort of center of it was that we're being... Uh, Gaslit uh, is really the idea and to see so many millions of people respond to that was really, really cool.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a testament to the film. I mean, you know, in a way, what you've pulled off is you've tackled the hardest ever subject to tackle with humour and the most important subject of our day. And you've done this kind of high-wire act, in a way, of this tonal high-wire act, which I just think is so admirable because tone is always such a hard thing to get right, isn't it? And I know from having listened... There's an amazing podcast, if, if you haven't heard it, of the making of the film. And I know from having listened to that that um, you had that all your conversations with your key collaborators were about tone and but the first person you collaborated with was yourself on writing the script <laughs> as a scriptwriter so tell us about how you found that tone in the script first
2: yeah so you know the whole question was how do you live in this moment we're living in which i think everyone in this room can agree it's unparalleled There's clearly a page turning into a new era right now. Uh, You know, I always compare it to like being in a bouncy castle filled with hyenas and long (laughs) stem wine glasses. That's kind of what it's like to be alive at this moment. So how do you process that? And really the big choice for us was the idea of going comedic. Yeah, And and all credit to uh, the journalist David Sirota, who's also a speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. He made a joke to me just about how it's like Armageddon, but no one cares, the asteroid is coming. And the second he said that, I was like, that's it. That's Mm -hmm. the idea. It's a very simple idea. It's a very big entrance. But I was like, man, if we could laugh, like we haven't we just haven't had a comedy in a long time. And it's interesting mm. that during the most fractured time that we're living through the last 10 years, mm. uh, there really haven't been that many comedies no, uh, so and, and and I really started thinking about it. It's because everyone's sort of being told to look at the world through their own lens. and for comedy to work, there has to be some common. Agreement like you have to. W.C. Fields kicks a kid. We know that you don't kick children, you know. Um, and <laughs> and we know that you know, with the Three Stooges, you don't put the mouse down the front of the woman's dress. <laughs> and so these seem like very visceral examples, but it's kind of true now that I, I think that common ground uh, has been shaken a bit,
1: yeah. And when you were making it, um, again, from the podcast, I can tell that it was a really bumpy ride, but you had lots of comic moments. But we have to start with this cast because it's just an astonishing cast. And I loved hearing you say that as you were assembling the A-listers, you were finding it embarrassing and having to apologize to your director friends. Um, Everybody here is director, by the way, so you can apologize to us all for having this astonishing cast. It was
2: grotesque. I mean, the more and more of these people that would sign up, it just became, I almost stopped telling some of my friends that, (laughs) yeah, we just got Kate
1: Blanchett. Yeah, yeah. They were just like, F you. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that, you know, I mean, there was this incredible alchemy on screen amongst the cast, but you come from an improv background and improv is central to your process, but not all these actors come from that background. I mean, you've obviously got Jenna Hill, who's the king of it. And how was it when you approached them and when you... Tell us about how you do improvisation on set when you're actually there.
2: So, you know, the big thing I use with all the actors because depending on who you're talking to, some people are really freaked out by it. Some people are neutral. Some people are excited. And the thing I just say over and over again is like, if it's no good, I won't use it. Mm-hmm. And and the example I always give is we were doing a, a comedy years ago called The Other Guys, and it was with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell, and Sam Jackson mm-hmm. was in it. And he was in a car that we were shooting for a green screen sequence that was going to pop up later in the movie. So it was like one of the first times I had worked with Sam, and he said the couple scripted lines, and I was like, Sam, what if you said this? And I threw out a line. he was like, no. And it just echoed across the sound state. And the crew had been working with me for the previous week or two, so they knew the way we did it. And everyone got really quiet. And I just said, Sam, if it sucks, I won't use it. And there was a long pause, and he was like, What was the line again? And then he did (laughs) the line. And then from that moment on, uh, Jackson was just addicted to improv. He would come up to me at every moment between shots and just be like, what if I said this? What if I said this? So it's it's really cool because it lights actors up. It gives them a freedom and a kind of liveliness. And you know you're going
1: to get the scripted. So there's really no risk to it. Um, so you start with the script, and then you start throwing in these lines. So for example, there's the scene with Timothy Chalamet in the car at the end with Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, and he proposes to her. And I heard in the podcast you mentioned that you'd sort of thrown that idea in there. Had you had that idea before, were you sort of building up to that, or did you have it on the spot?
2: It was on the spot. Actually, that entire scene was improvised, there were three lines. Where are we going? We're going shopping. Why are we going shopping again? And that was it. That was the really? whole scripted scene. So, once again, you get out there with your actors. You have the tow rig for the car. They're all dressed up. We were in Boston, so there was like a snowstorm. And so, you know, they're great actors. I know they can get that exchange. And I just said to uh, to the three of them, is there any music maybe you could play in the car? And right away, DiCaprio's like, the Mills Brothers. And I was like, what? I mean, I know who the Mills Brothers are, but he's like, I love the Mills Brothers. And he right away got excited. He's like, I have the perfect song. And he started playing. I was like, yep, play that song. So the way we shot the scene was they did the scripted every single time we began with that. Mm. And then he would say, he would just kind of mime towards the radio and go, oh, I love this song. And he would talk about it, and it was around the third take that I was just over that crackly, strange mic in the back of the car, and I was like, Timothy, ask Jen Lawrence to marry you. You know, ask Kate DiBiosky to marry you do it in an awkward way and stumble and he's like what and i was like ask her to marry you and like you know the mag is running out wow and uh and then he did that take um but it, it's one of those great situations where there's nothing
1: at risk you yeah guess, why not and then they all went with it obviously because she responded brilliantly <laughs> i mean it's it's a beautiful that smile moment. she gives i love that smile yeah yeah I mean, another thing I heard was that in the Oval Office scenes, which are so extraordinary, and you're you know balancing so many different characters and actors there, um, that Meryl Streep began that scene, although I don't think it made the cut, but she began it with a long improvised phone call.
2: Oh, my God. It, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen, and I've worked with improvisational actors for years and years and years, and I didn't know how... I mean, she's Meryl Streep, so you know... Mm the kind of fundamentals of great acting work for improv. Because you have to listen, you have to be sensitive, you have to play through your character. So I knew she'd be good. Every single take she did, she began with a completely different improvised phone call. I have never, Jonah Hill and I would talk between lighting setups and we would just go, I would go, Jonah, have you ever seen anything like this? He's like, no. Wow. I would do four or five versions and I would repeat them. I was like, same here. Mm -hmm. And and, and they were all these perfect little contained bizarre vignettes uh, that would just be like, wait, who's she talking to? Oh, wait, did she get breast implants? Oh, no, her friend got <laughs> breast implants. Wait, why did she say I love you at the end? Like, And every one was this
1: little, like, nine-line play. Um... Oh, that's so! I love that. And, and and another thing that I thought I was really curious to ask you about was that you obviously um, with Mark Rylance, there's a moment in the podcast again, which I, do, I did my own in podcast. It's called the last movie it's so good. ever made. By listen the way. To it. It's pretty cool. It's totally addictive. Yeah. I just walked all around my neighborhood listening to it. But um, Mark Rylance says, uh, you you talk about a breakthrough with his character where you um, alighted on the fact that he shouldn't make eye contact, and I just think that sometimes those simple, you know, quite profound. But very simple things can unlock a performance, can't they? That that was really the key with him because.
2: Uh, The hardest character in the movie, as you guys know, the tech billionaire, because the real tech billionaires are so beyond parody and what they're, it's so, they're so (laughs) grotesque and shooting themselves in the space. And because they figured out an app that can get you, you know, pizza five minutes quicker, they think they're gods of kind of the universe. By the way, God bless them all. Um, (laughs) But... So when I, I I talked with Mark about it, we both realized this is really hard to mm-hmm. parody. Mm. And so we started talking about the idea that part of their mythology is that they're outsiders. They're shy outsiders. Mm-hmm. And we sort of, from kicking it back and forth, we were like, what if they're not shy? What if it's disdain? Yeah. And... So it's never said in the movie, but you guys saw it, the moment where Rylance finally looks at Leo, and he's like, did you call me a businessman? That's where you really mm-hmm. see what he feels. So uh, that was easily the most difficult character in the really? movie. Oh, yeah, because I just, I mean, you know, you what do you do with the, these people yeah. are so ridiculous, and they're already so over the top, Um you know, you look at the old movies like Dr. Strangelove with Peter Sellers' arm shooting up and you realize how kind of slapsticky and, and overtly comedic those movies were. And you realize like, oh, they were parroting General Curtis LeMay, mm. who in real life was a lunatic yeah and, or the Dulles brothers who are really scary sociopaths yeah and so when you get into that realm that, like slapstick and, and kind of larger comedy can really be your friend
1: yeah that's so interesting and actually talking of references like Dr. Strangelove and the other references that I've seen cited like Network and Wag the Dog, and um, I was interested to, to hear that Lina Sangren your DP, his references, which sort of speaks volumes about this film and the way it moves between different styles, his references were things like Armageddon and Independence Day in yes. Europe. So you had these two extremes. And then also reflected in that was the fact that you were shooting on 35 anamorphic and with these macro cameras. So you were sort of doing close-ups and the big scale, weren't you? I mean,
2: yeah. that was crazy. Yeah, we we, we love to blend Formats, You know, it's the way we perceive the world now. You're always seeing video uh, off of cell phones. You're seeing grainy things off of screen. And then there's lush kind of 360 life. So um, one of the funniest moments like that was there is a scene with Leo and Kate where they're online saying, look up in the sky. There's the comet Mm. and we're shooting it. And I'm like, this is on cell phone. This will not be on 35. And like seven people came up to me and were like, but we should get it on 35, right? And I was like, <laughs> no, it'll never play on 35. It has to be on cell phone. And then someone else would walk up and Linus would say, you know, I can put a camera over there for 35. You know, Linus, it would make no sense to be on 35. So... It was funny, and and credit to Netflix who really was cool with that. I mean, to see your dailies come back with uh, big movie stars like Leo mm-hmm. DiCaprio and Jen Lawrence, <laughs> and the only coverage <laughs> is literally our prop guy Michael Bates like
1: holding a cell phone. No. <laughs> it was uh, it was very funny. And did in the prep with Lena? How did that go? Was it a lot of back and forth? Were you were you really mapping out how you were going to shoot it? Yeah, I mean, that's one of my
2: favorite things. I'm Mm. sure, you know, there's a a lot of directors here. I'm sure we all know it's one of the more enjoyable parts of the collaboration is the work with the DP, and I just love that period. We watch a lot of movies. We talk about the energy. We talk about the color palette. We meet with the production designer. You meet with wardrobe. You go through that whole thing, Mm. and I kept saying And it's interesting that you had heard that Linus said he was kind of referencing those action films because I kept talking about how network, if you look at it, it's pretty classically shot. It's not, they're not doing anything unusual. There's kind of a bold power. It's beautifully shot. And I thought that's really what we want to do. We want to live right in that intersection of Hmm. legitimacy and entertainment, we want sort of a, a, a pop to the colors. We don't, you know, some of the more uh, Hollywood movies can uh, run away from shadows. I was like, we're not going to run away from shadows. You know, we want depth. We want reality. We have to have that. And Linus and I just went back and forth with this. And he's a wonderfully collaborative, I mean, you guys, I'm sure know, uh, wonderfully talented, collaborative guy. So by the time we started rolling, I was like, Wow, that's exactly what I was talking about, and oh, really? and from that point on, we were in a good groove together.
1: Yeah, and then the other—I mean, there are so many different um, layers to this film and collaborations to talk about, but the editor clearly is so key here. Oh. And the the just you know you talked about mixed formats, mixed media, but the the way that freeze frames are used, the, the cutting and the and the use of that natural history stock footage is just I mean the lizards I've still got the image isn't you know hippopotami <laughs> I mean they're all in my you know head and so when did that does, how did that evolve.
2: So, yeah, so I'm lucky enough to get to work with Hank Corwin, who, um, you know, he's done stuff like JFK and Tree of Life and Natural Born Killers. And he's very experimental and he loves to play around with sort of how we perceive image. And my joke with Hank is always that, you know, back in the day, he was the wild experimental editor And now I always tell them, I was like, the times have caught up with you. (laughs) The world is actually as crazy as your style now. And so the goal with this movie, and it was a really tricky line because we were trying to make a big movie. Mm -hmm. A big movie that could play around the world. But at the same time with the editing, we wanted to capture that feeling of anxiety, of overwhelm, of too much. Uh, that we all experience every day, living in twenty twenty two so it was always this fine line when we would do we were lucky enough to be able to do some test screenings and and we were really trying to feel it because you know, audio, they're not audiences aren't used to chopping off in the middle of a line. They're not used to the, you know, image rate going a little faster than your mind can track. And so we, we really had to make a decision about that. And Hank's instincts are incredible. I mean, the guy's done so much good stuff. So it was finding that line of pushing it over the line, but not so much that we shed the majority of the audience. And, uh, Between Hank's work with the edit and our composer, uh, brilliant Nicholas Pertel, the two of them were like, Mm. I was the guy who said, like, let's put a beef shank and let's put a candy cane and an apple in a saucepan. Make it a sauce. And (laughs) good luck. (laughs) (laughs) And those poor guys had Uh, to actually, I mean, I was with them the whole time, but mm. we had to just work and work and work. And how can you bring these strange, disparate feelings of being alive in this moment together, of laughing, being overwhelmed, being terrified, uh, being disgusted. And, and can they all exist in the same
1: kettle? Well, Bratel, I mean, did such an extraordinary job on this film, didn't he? And 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 I think that even the orchestration, the, the instrumentation is extraordinary because you've got toy pianos in there and finger snaps as well as kind of brass back. you've got everything, haven't you? You've got, the, And you've got pop songs and you've got, I mean, so tell us about your process with him. Cause didn't he, he wrote something very early on for you.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I've worked with Nick on the big short and yeah. vice and we did succession together. Um, so Nick's obviously brilliant, but man, this one was hard. Mm. And, we kept looking for that piece of music over the opening credits. And I just felt like that was the beating heart of the movie. And we tried a bunch of different things. Some were a little more serious, some were like way ludicrous. And then it it was an incidental conversation with Nick where we were talking about that feeling during, when you see it in movies or you read about it, when soldiers are going off to war in world war Mm two and they go out the beginning of Das Boot has an incredible (laughs) sequence where all the U-boat people kinda know they're gonna die Mm -hmm. and they're just like let's hear some music and get hammered and I was like and he was like yeah it's it's like that feeling Mm -hmm. like there's the kind of glory of we're gonna go for it but we're gonna lose Mm -hmm. and and then like, I swear it was like three hours later, he came back with that music and I was just like, that's it. That's like Stan Kenton on the Lusitania. Like that's exactly the kind of careening, drunk, but yet fun, rollicking kind of feeling Um He's amazing. He's a a force of nature. And then so he writes something that unhinged and broken and frolicking. And then when they see the comet later in the movie, you know, that's a big gear shift. Suddenly, Mm. basically the light of God is upon you Mm. and you've been in this ridiculous comedy. And everything gets, and he wrote that piece of music. It was like, wow, it just, the gear shift was perfect. And credit to Hank Corwin too, who from the initial assembly of the film chose to edit it like the light of God is upon you, even though we're in a ludicrous comedy and and God bless him, I was like, yes, those kinds of gear shifts are what this movie needs.
1: And then so surprisingly, I had that he's also, he was a fan of hip hop and he was the one that, Found the lyricist for the song with Ariana Grande. Is that right? Is that... <laughs>
2: yeah. So I I told uh, Nick. I just said you have to write the song to save mankind. He was like, no problem. <laughs> and uh, and he he found this great lyricist, Torah Stinson, mm. who came in because I actually had tried to write the lyrics and they weren't. <laughs> to be honest,
1: um, was that your first time of trying to write?
2: <laughs> no, written, I, years and years I've written lyrics, and uh, I love doing it. But when you're talking about Ariana Grande, Nicholas Brutel, I was you know I was in over my head. So I tried a couple times. I was like Nick, just get someone good. So he he found uh, Tara, and she was incredible. Um, but the thing that blew him away was you know he went into the studio with ariana and he came back and he was like it's one of the greatest voices i've ever heard in my life and you know nicholas is a classically trained, you know, world, you know, uh, high, high sort of standard dude. And he's coming back and saying, this pop star, he was like, no, it's one of the greatest voices I've ever heard. But the best part was on the scratch track that he did with Ariana, she improvised that whole run about we're all gonna die, trust the scientists. And he played it for me and I was like, keep that, leave that in. And it might be one of my favorite moments in the movie the fact that the biggest pop star in the world, in the most beautiful voice is singing, (laughs)
1: we're all going to die.
2: And every time we screen the movie, I'd just be like, I can't believe that's happening.
1: (laughs) Well, talking about Ariana Grande, and again, it's another brilliant sequence, a sort of set piece on the podcast, is the filming of that concert. I mean, you were beset by COVID issues, as we know, and all sorts of very serious issues and riots and terrible things. But then I love the fact that your producer, you know, found that the dress was the problem. The biggest headache was her dress (laughs) out of everything.
2: Yeah, there was a crazy dress that our brilliant costume designer, Susan Matheson, had to have for her. And she showed it to me and I was like, you're not wrong, that's amazing. But they had to like ship it from Italy and it (laughs) had to go in like a special case. And there had to be, like, an armed detail with it at all times. Part's not true, but the rest is. (laughs) And you just make stuff up all the time? (laughs) (laughs) And then there was, like, issues about the fit and then the... And then
1: yeah, the wind wouldn't blow. I mean, the, the yeah. The wind, it, it, you, oh. wow. You listen to the <laughs> His fans. Yeah, the whole, this poor guy who had all these fans.
2: Oh my god! Oh. And the, the you know the e fan guy is trying to get the wind to blow right, and Susan Matheson is this South African force of nature who used to run punk rock clubs in L.A. in the eighties, and she's just buzzing around. And so yeah, I mean, you know, we're. We're trying to recreate Wembley Stadium during a pandemic mm. with only 70 extras. We oh. have our VFX people doing it. We're in an old pigeon-infested <laughs> uh, hangar outside <laughs> Boston. And, and for about three hours, it was all about this dress.
1: Yeah. Oh, that can drive you mad. And the, you know the team is so important, as we all know, on films. And I love the fact that your script supervisor... You brought her out of retirement for this, and then you gave her a producer credit on it, didn't you? So is she your kind of right-hand person when you're when you're actually on set shooting and you're just having to bounce off someone? Is she your sounding board? Yes. Yeah, I, I've
2: worked with Kate Hardman. I started with her on Talladega Nights, which I think was like 2003, 2004, and just ever since then, I've wanted to work with her. She used to be an editor... Um, and so, you know, that's great with a script supervisor, but she's also funny as hell. And she's just this acerbic Texan who will tell you, Adam, I got to tell you, that is the ugliest shot I have ever seen. <laughs> and she will not hold her tongue ever. Wow. And then, uh, and she's really funny and has incredible stories, but she knows movies and, uh, you 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 know we've shot stuff in fifty mile per hour wind with sandstorms. We've shot stuff. I mean, you guys know it's the back of bumpy trucks, and she is just tough as nails. And we call her the the uh, Texas Tornado. And she said after this movie, Adam, I do believe I'm done. <laughs> I was like, I don't blame you. And so she is fully retired. I was able to drag her out for this. And I was like, well, Kate, how cool is it? Your last movie is an end-of-the-world movie. Isn't it perfect? It's perfect. And I talked to her a couple months ago, and she's like, well, I just wish the movie didn't resemble
1: reality quite so much. Uh, I was like, yeah. Yeah. So we also have to talk about production design, because I noticed on watching it, I've watched it three times now, that you know you know it's so layered and there's so much detail, and you start to pick up on that detail. And you know, I started to notice the fossil motifs and and the um, and the pictures on the Oval Office and all sorts of stuff. So how many are you having all those conversations about that level of detail? Yeah, I mean it's it's one
2: of the fun things obviously about making movies is you can create these layers of narrative and I've worked with Clayton Hartley for years and mm-hmm. years so we we had a lot of fun burying extinction images in the movie and if you look closely there's a bunch of them one of the more obvious ones there's a guy dressed as a dinosaur mm-hmm. handing out flyers but uh, Sarah's totally right the fossil image behind them while they're having dinner
0: mm-hmm. uh, and there's a
2: bunch of other ones that are hidden in there so Yeah, it's really fun. And then, you know, structurally, too, the way you're building the set or what you're picking as your location is such a huge part of how you shoot the scene, how you frame it, how the characters interact. You know, with the scene where they're uh, at the newspaper offices, the New York Herald, we purposely did a glass box in the middle of, like, a big, sprawling room Mm -hmm. uh, because the idea was... They're not quite in reality, but they're trying to be in reality. So um, I love stuff like that. It's just really, really fun. And, you know, ultimately, too, you want it to look uh, stimulating and and alive. And I love seeing those conversations between the DP, Mm -hmm. the costume designer, the Mm -hmm. production designer. We always come up with our palette, the texture. I mean, honestly, I could do that for like a year straight, just that element of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, that uh, is so fun, isn't it? I mean, oh, you, and that. also, it, this offered you so many opportunities to go into so many different worlds. And, and I I personally loved the world of The Daily Rip. It was just the TV studio it was priceless, wasn't it? I, I mean, I think that was one of the best things
2: Clayton did. That was a, a, a out-of-business car dealership that he found outside Boston And he showed me the drawings and he told me, he said, I'm going to do this. And I showed up on the day. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is crazy. And we kept laughing the whole time because like we could just plug on air and immediately the daily rip would be one of the top three news shows every morning Uh, across the country. Um, But it was also upsetting. It was like, you know, from doing some of these shows, I was like, yeah, this is what it feels like and then Blanchette hit that and her and Tyler Perry. Oh. It was crazy. They never met. They could you know it's COVID. So they walk on set hmm. and I tell him, I go, look, you guys have been doing this for 10 years. You have to have a chemistry. And within five minutes they were just improvising off of each other, Brie and Jack. And wow. and I remember just leaning in at some point, I was like Thank God you guys are on the side of good, because this is
1: evil, it's what evil. you're doing right now. I, I, I love the fact that Tyler Perry rang up actual news pundits and got them to record the lines for him as prep.
2: Crazy. He actually contacted <laughs> Morning Joe uh, with Joe Scarborough and Mika and and he got them to read... The lines by the way he did the same thing on vice did he you? actually had a conversation with colin powell mm-hmm. he didn't get him to read his lines but he talked to him wow and i was like he
1: well, off his own bat he just went oh straight...
2: totally because yeah. if he had asked me i would have said no do <laughs> uh, but he was like yeah i talked to you. i mean Tyler Perry is the definition of a mogul. I mean, he is a, you know, giant, powerful human being, but he's also lovely and collaborative. So, yeah, he told me,
1: oh, oh by the way, I called Colin Powell. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> That's so funny. And we had also, we, I mean, there, are, you know, I don't even know what, what to sort of focus on next because there's so much, but the ending really, really pulls the rug out from under you, you know, it, it, it took me so by surprise that actually you let it happen. I just, and on the second watch, it was such a different watch because I was so on the side of Leo and Jennifer Lawrence, like, ah, because I knew it was going to happen. But the first time I genuinely was in denial. And I think you've done, you know, you've Ooh. played a trick there. I don't know. Who, whether did earth. you know? I always love asking yeah, that that's question. that's so interesting. I mean, you know, I actually don't think I knew until it, Pretty much was a really? us. I mean, I was so deeply in denial. And I think that's such a clever trick because we're, you're sort of, you're inverting the genre, aren't you? You're playing off the fact that we are so used to happy endings and we're all in denial anyway about the climate crisis and everything else, but.
2: Yeah, I love asking people and, and it's great to talk to filmmakers. Mm. Um, and I've had some really interesting conversations with different filmmakers about when they knew we were going to actually not save the day. And it's always curious what, what sort of tells it for certain people. I mean, most of the filmmakers I've talked to have your response, which is really? I never believed it was going to happen. I mean, it was funny, you know, you get texts and you get emails from all these people you've known. And, uh, one of the first screenings we did, Todd Phillips of all people texted me and he's like, you fucking did it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, of course the guy who made The Joker would give me that
1: response. Um, And how did Netflix respond when you, you know, I mean, when you presented the script to people, was that something people came back on?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we sent it to all the major studios and it was a spec script. And uh, five or six of them just outright were like, will you change the ending? I was like, well, no, the whole point is, mm. you know, I, I can mess with the tone, but it has to end this way. Mm. And they were like, ah, we're not doing it. And, uh, thank God. I mean, all you need are two or three places to believe in it. And it was Netflix and two other studios were like, all right, we think we can do it. And,
1: um, wow. Good yeah, on that you.
2: conversation I had with Netflix was always like, look, I don't want, audiences to turn around and, and attack me at the end of the movie. Uh, but I do want it to hit with a punch. Mm-hmm. And I, I just told uh, Scott Stuber and Kira, who are amazing, I just told them, like, I'm, I'm with you. I want this thing to play. Uh, and there's a lot of things you can do, which you know with music, with the cut pattern, with taking a little bit of drama off one moment. I mean, there are a million different ways to play that ending. And sure enough, in the edit room, we got into it. Um, There was just all this little tweaking. And at the very end, there was one shot that uh, Hank Corwin had found of a guy... um, Orthodox Jew, uh, I think it was a rabbi, Mm. leaning his head against the wailing wall Mm. and sort of with this sad look on his face. And I was like, Hank, I think it's just a little too much. Mm. I was like, I think it's a little too much basil in the sauce. (laughs) And he was like, oh, but that shot. So those were the kinds of conversation we were having. I mean, the shot that really always got me, you brought up the lizard in the beginning. Yeah, The one that every single time got me was the bee. Just that
1: perfect yeah, yeah, bee, oh.
2: beautiful bee, and you realize how perfectly yeah. everything's designed. No, what are we and, doing? And it's exactly <laughs> how it should be. And I swear to you, if I watched it now, it would still get me. I don't. I don't know why. Um, but uh,
1: yeah, and then brave to have Meryl Streep naked with a tattoo on her back. And who would have known? That, you know, that
2: that that's was... pretty standard, though. I think most <laughs> movies end with naked Meryl Streep with a <laughs> tattoo on her back. Um, I'll tell you, it was brave her for doing it because yeah. it's a ridiculous ending. Obviously, that's not her. That's a, a bot bubble. <laughs> but um, the fact that she was game for it. And do you know the story behind that joke? No. So that was improvised. No. So that, yes, that was Mark Rylance and Merrill on the set for the bash launch towards the end of the movie. And I did what I always do. I'm like, you only have five lines in this scene. I was like, uh, what can we talk about? And Merrill just went, I want to know how I'm going to die.
1: Oh, really? And, so then you
2: built it into the ending. Exactly. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, from the previous scene. I go, well, why don't you ask... Uh, Mark, a.k.a. Peter Isherwell, how you're going to die. And he was like, you know, Mark kind of half-talks in character. He's like, oh, that's interesting. How would she die? And I was like, well, she's going to the new planet. Maybe there's a creature that eats her. And I was like, all right. And they started playing around with it. And what was funny was every time he said the creature, the name changed. (laughs) So it was a Brontorat. It was a slot. It was, you know, because we were improvising it. So after this. Then you had to build this creature. Well, this (laughs) so after the scene was done, I had to call over Raymond. Your producers must hate you. Oh, (laughs) my God. I was like, Ray, I think we're doing that. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, I think you gotta build a Bronte rock. That was my favorite take. By the way, you know, <laughs> Kate circle Rock. I already circled it. And uh, <laughs> and uh I was like, Yeah, I think we gotta make a Brontoract. Yeah. And and Dion and Ray were just like, You gotta be kidding me. And then from that moment on it was in and Meryl and Mark were totally into it. So uh, yeah, there was an improvised CGI VFX beat, which I was like, I wonder if anyone could look at film history. Has that ever
1: happened? Before? I don't think that yeah. ever has. I mean, you've broken a lot of rules. You've thrown the rule book out, really. Yes,
2: you? <laughs> I always say the ghost of Sid Field uh, wants to murder me. I'm sure because
1: he's we turning broke every in his grave. single rule. Yeah, because you you consistently break script rules, don't you?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of our approach to this moment. Is that these old narratives that. We become very comfortable with that have been put out over and over again that maybe they're not quite telling the story, especially with an ending where the world dies. Like that Mm. we're so used to happy endings in some ways, maybe that's affecting our lack of action.
1: I don't know. But we certainly went for it. Well, you started, you know, protests and I mean, you know, marches in France and it's been seen all over the world. So I think it's, it's working. It's working. I mean, it's, it's kicking (laughs) up some dust. I mean, it's just a movie, but it's kicking up
2: some dust and, and what we really hope, and I think it's going to happen. We don't even have to hope is we're going to see more and more movies, more and more stories as we go into this new era. But, um, the most hopeful part was just to see that worldwide reaction and know yeah. that we weren't crazy.
1: Yeah, and that's fantastic. Honestly, this is a film that really, really should live forever because it's got such an important message in it. I hope uh, some of us make films as important as this. <laughs> thank uh, you.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. We really appreciate it.
0: This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, Soundcloud, Spotify or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.